English Bible. My guess is you own one. And my guess is you have no idea what a privilege it is to own one. What a price that was paid so that we could each have a copy of God's Word. The story of the English Bible goes back to a man by the name of William Tyndale 500 years ago at this exact location. I am just outside the city of Brussels in Belgium. And it was at this location that William Tyndale translated the Old Testament of the Bible into English. You need to hear the story. William Tyndale was born in England, a very affluent uh, royal family. He was privileged to be able to study at the very best schools. He went to Oxford and Cambridge, and he studied the languages because he wanted to be a priest. You see, the only ones who could read the Bible back in those days were the few who were educated in Greek and Hebrew. Tyndale was, and as a result, he started reading the Bible. It revolutionized his life. He could not believe what God was like and how life with God could be. Well, wouldn't you know, with this growing passion came a zeal to have the Bible in the hands of all English people. Tyndale said, let's get this Bible to everybody. He translated the New Testament of the Bible for the common people but was forbidden by the king to have it printed. The printing press was a new invention in Tyndale's day. And the the, the church and the king, everybody thought common people should not have the Bible in their native tongue. In fact, the king went so far as to say, it is illegal and punishable by death to print the English version of the New Testament. With that thread in place, Tyndale was not to be stopped. He left his beloved homeland of England. He sailed across the sea to Germany and to here in Belgium. And it was here he found a printer that printed 6,000 copies of the English Bible. And then he had them smuggled over the sea back into England. And yes... He was arrested. Finally, a spy from England caught him here, had him thrown in jail. In fact, he was put in a dungeon in a palace that was at this exact location, built over this river. And from his dungeon in that palace, he translated the Old Testament. After he was done, the king announced this man must die for his hideous crime of distributing the Bible. And right here, once again, William Tyndale was executed, strangled with a rope and his body burned at the stake. Friends, here's a man who was committed more than anything else in his life to make sure that people could get the Bible, devoted his life to the task, left his country for the task, died at the stake for that task. And as the translation of the Bible into common languages started to spread all over Europe, it ignited one of the greatest spiritual awakenings this world has ever seen. Good morning, Bolingbrook 95th Hobson people. Isn't that kind of fun? Uh, I, I was over in Europe on a really primarily a missions trip, meeting with 
maybe eight of our different missionary partners. But while I was there, I had a secondary objective, and that was to shoot video in the land of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. So every week of this five-week series, we have a little video where I'm able to introduce you to the location where this great drama took place, the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, you know, is Tuesday. When you think of October 31st, you probably think of Halloween. But it shares another holiday on that date, and that is Reformation Day. And this Tuesday is the 500-year anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. It was October 31st, 1517, that it all began. You say, what started it? Oh, good question, and I'm not going to tell you. I will next week, so you got to come back and find out. But... For now, know that it started, and friends, what a spiritual revival it was. From that date, in the next 30 years, millions upon millions upon millions of people throughout Europe became genuine believers. Now, there were just tens of millions that became Protestant. In fact, whole countries flipped from being Catholic to Protestant in that 30-year span. In that 30-year span, England and Germany and Hungary and Austria and the Netherlands and Switzerland and all the Scandinavian countries all officially became Protestant. Unbelievable time of religious upheaval. Now, some of you are scholars, and you would be quick to add the Protestant Reformation had a lot of ugly stuff in it, Jeff. And I just want to acknowledge that up front. Anytime people are involved, there's bound to be ugliness. And yes, there was here too. Martin Luther, who is credited as the founder of the Protestant Reformation, in his old age said some horrific things about Jewish people. Very sad. There was violence and battles that ensued because of the Protestant Reformation. Some of the motives of people who became Protestants weren't purely spiritual. In fact, like the king of England, the reason that England became Protestant was he wanted to divorce his wife and the Catholic Church wasn't allowing him to get a divorce. And so he said, problem solved, we're now Protestant and I'll do what I want. Uh, Some countries were motivated by money. They were grabbing and confiscating the land of the Catholic Church as they declared themselves Protestant. And so I just want to acknowledge that as in any event that has people involved, it was messed up to some degree. But let's get beyond the messed upness and get to the core of the spiritual renewal that took place in many, not all, but many of the people. Folks, in a 30-year span, millions upon millions of people fell in love with Jesus Christ were dead spiritually, but found new and eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was one of the most monumentous revivals in world history. And we're going to study it. And we're not alone. There's lots of churches on this 500-year anniversary that are doing series about the Protestant Reformation. We call ours the five solas because, next slide, there were five Latin phrases that were essentially battle cries, theological affirmations that were the foundation of this great movement. We're going to study them all, one per week. Week one, it's sola scriptura. Do you know Latin? In scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. 
Solus Christos, Christ alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. And solo dea gloria, for the glory of God alone. Oh, it's going to be good. Are you ready? You like theology? Some of you are like, uh-uh, I hate theology. Uh. I promise to strive at least to make this accessible, not too heady. It's going to be deep, but it's going to be accessible, and you're going to benefit as they were back then. All right. Sola Scriptura. Let me start this first message about Scripture alone by showing you one of my most prized possessions. I own a page from an old Bible. That doesn't sound very exciting, but you should know this particular page is 750 years old. Can you imagine that? Here on the screen, you can see a little closer. But let's go even closer. Uh, it's called an illuminated manuscript. Manuscript means by hand. 750 years ago was before the printing press was invented. So the only way to have books were to hand write them. And a very talented scribe made this illuminated manuscript. Illuminated because the scribe would use artistic license to decorate. And it's almost like it's illuminated or it lights up because of the artistic flair. I love it. it. This page happens to be Psalm 63, which is one of my favorite psalms. So it's a precious, precious uh, piece of antiquity. Now, it's also physical evidence of a very sad reality 750 years ago. And you say, what, what is the sad reality? Well, let me tell you. Uh, first of all, imagine how much it costs to have a Bible made this way. You should know that this page is vellum, which is animal skin, calf skin. Uh, they didn't invent paper in Europe at this time, and so the material cost of a Bible, all that leather, very expensive. But more than the material cost, a scribe writing, handwriting every single word of the Bible by hand took him immense amounts of time. And as a result, a Bible would have been prohibitively expensive. Common people could never afford a Bible. Only the richest of the rich or theological institutions of high reputation actually owned a Bible. You know what the second problem this piece of paper is physical evidence of? A language problem. The language here is Latin. And 700 year, 750 years ago, nobody spoke Latin. You say, well, then why would the scribe translate it into Latin? That's a very good question. The history goes that back in the 4th century, Jerome, a, a scholar, that's 4th century is back when Latin was the primary language of the Roman Empire. Jerome translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And people loved Jerome's Vulgate. And the, the decision was made, this Bible is so perfect, it should be untouched. In fact, Latin should be the official language of the church. And then when it went out of vogue and nobody spoke it, the church stubbornly clung to their Latin. <laughs> so here's the situation back 750 years ago. Nobody could afford a Bible, and even if they couldn't, nobody could read a Bible. So as a result, no one knew anything about the Bible. In those days, the church leadership said, you don't need to read the Bible. In fact, that'd be a bad thing. Trust us. We'll tell you all the spiritual truth you need to know. And they started making up theological truth. 
They, they could, no one could say you're wrong. The Bible doesn't say that because no one had the Bible. And so church leadership became the authority rather than the scriptures. And that's when the reformers rose up and said, this is crazy talk. We need to go back to what God says, not what man says. And the Bible is God's word. And so uh, Martin Luther was the first one to translate the Bible into common language. He translated it into English, I'm sorry, German, which was his language. And the word started to spread that this was happening. And William Tyndale at the same time said, if Martin Luther's doing German, I'll do English. And in five years, five of the major languages of Europe suddenly had the Bible. It was German and English and Dutch and French and Swedish. And not only were the scholars translating, technology in God's providence met that moment with the printing press and the invention of paper, and suddenly the Bible was affordable. And so one time, nobody's got a Bible. Five years later, suddenly everyone was getting the Word of God in their own hands. Can you believe that? 30 years in Martin Luther's lifetime, Every single language of Western Europe was enjoying the Bible translated into their hands. And so the Bible is the source of the foundational transformation that ignited this incredible revival. Without the Bible, the spiritual condition of the church was horrendous. And when I say that, you should know that even Catholics would agree that though the Catholic Church was all there was back before the Protestant Reformation in the Western part of the world, they would say, yes, the condition of the church was horrendous. Spiritually, people were just dead. But with uh, the Bible came renewal. Now, what I want to do, speaking of the Bible, is now turn to the Bible, and I want to study with you an awakening in the Old Testament that has amazing parallels to the awakening of the Protestant Reformation especially as it relates to Scripture. There was a time in the Old Testament where the Bible was lost. you got to remember back then, it was even more expensive and hard to make. And as a result, the people got the Bible by going to the temple and hearing it read. It was an auditory culture. Well, unfortunately, some really wicked kings in Israel came along and they closed down the temple. They shut down all worship of God, turned to foreign false gods, and uh, it was just a horrendous season where the Bible was just largely lost. And along comes Josiah, this young king, who unlike his father and his grandfather, had a love for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, we got to reopen the temple and start the worship of the Lord again. In fact, he designated huge amounts of money because the temple had been in disrepair, he said, we need to renovate the temple in Jerusalem. And as they renovated the temple in Jerusalem, I don't know if it was in the basement or in the attic or in some neglected storage closet, but in the renovations, they were like, what is that? Now, the Bible in those days would have been a massive scroll, probably comprising the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. But they found the Bible doing the renovation of the, te- the temple. And that's where we pick up. This is Second Kings chapter 22, verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest. The high priest was in charge of the renovations at the temple, okay? 
Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. What a finding. Folks, this finding is what triggers, as we're about to see, a spiritual awakening throughout the land that was just beautiful. I want to study how the Bible brought about this awakening because I believe it lays out a path how the Bible can bring awakening for us. And so we're going to do what they did. Sound good? The first thing is you got to own a Bible. This verse makes it clear that prior to the finding, they didn't have one. Now that they found it, they have one. And so the first step is you got to have one. Do you own a Bible? And I know that some here don't. Let's take care of that problem right now. See the Bible in the seat back in front of you? Steal it. I invite you to take it, write your name in it, bring it home, claim it as your own, free of charge. I suppose if the pastor is inviting you to stealing it, it's not stealing at all, is it? It's a gift of love. Take it. We all now own a Bible. Check. Check own. That's good. So now let's go to the next verse. He, that is Hilkiah, gave it, that is the Bible, to Shaphan, that's the secretary, who read it. I don't think Hilkiah read it. He was just like, cool. Shaphan said, hey, can I take this for a moment? I'd like to read it. The second step seems obvious is you got to read it. Sometimes I'll talk to people, hey, do you own a Bible? Ah, uh, yeah, I think my mom or back in confirmation and maybe in our basement. Listen, if it's collecting dust, it's doing no good, right? The only way to access the transformational power of the Bible is to read it. And Shavan knew it. He read it. He goes, this book should be read. And friends, if it's going to be read in your life, you need a plan. You got to set aside time every day. Maybe it's just 10 minutes in the morning or 10 minutes at night. But to say a little bit, I'm going to try to get value in my life out of reading this book. You know, a reading plan is a good idea. For me, my reading plan is rather simple. I turn to the table of contents and I say, which of the books of the Bible would I like to read? Uh, that one. And I turn to it and I just read maybe sometimes just 10 verses. Sometimes just two verses because I'm so stirred. But I slowly work my way through that book, and when I'm done, I go back to the table of contents, put a little check mark by that book, and say, done with that book, now what's next? Uh, that one. Highly sophisticated. Anyways, my wife, on the other hand, she loves Bible reading plans that you can find online. We've got one on our church app. The Compass Church app has a Bible reading plan that's quite aggressive. It'll take you through the whole Bible in one year. You may want to use that. Or here's a website. Next slide. My wife uses version. They've got multiple Bible reading plans. You can pick a one that you say, oh, that's, you know, to my liking. But have a, have a plan and read it. Next slide. All right. It says in verse 10 that Shaphan, this is the secretary dude, he read from it in the presence of the king, King Josiah. So apparently Shaphan, after reading it, takes it to the king and says, you won't believe what we found. King Josiah says, read it to me. And so Josiah got the Bible 
in the presence of Shaphan. Shaphan was with him when he heard the Bible read. What does that, what's the significance of that? Well, what was Shaphan? We read previously he was the secretary. Other passages call him a scribe, the royal scribe. Uh, little uh, archaeological aside, would you allow me a second? Let's go to this next slide. Uh, in the 1980s, they were excavating what is believed to be the palace in Jerusalem. So this would be the, the ground where the house Josiah lived in. They found a whole bunch of these bula. A bula is a little clay button that they would use to seal documents. They'd take a scroll, roll it up, wrap leather around it, and press a little clay button to seal it. They'd use their ring, which marked it with their signature. All right? Well, all of these clay bula were found in one of them. This one in particular, my replica happens to be of this exact bula. This one was found at the house of Josiah. It dates to the time of Josiah. And the name on it is Jemimiah, son of Shaphan. And when we read in the Bible, Shaphan had a son named Jemimiah. And so here you go. This was belonging to him. Physical evidence that this guy actually lived. Only the well-off would have a ring and be able to do this. This guy was big time. The royal scribe was very important in that day. The royal scribe was like the communications expert for the king. He was a scholar, a literary scholar. Next slide. So going back to King Josiah, he had the privilege of reading or hearing the Bible read in the presence of the number one literary scholar in the land. That's helpful, right? If you've got questions. I don't think Shaphan knew the Bible. No one did. But Shaphan knew words and language and literature and could help him understand what he couldn't understand on his own. Wouldn't it be nice to have the help of a scholar when you're trying to understand the Bible? Folks, you can. There are these things called commentaries. They're books written by scholars, Bible scholars, who help explain difficult passages. They explain all passages. Uh, they work through. I love commentaries. Some of my professors that I studied with in grad school are writing these commentaries. I would encourage you, if you're studying the book of Mark, for example, Google best commentary on Mark and, and invest to have that commentary by your side as you read the Bible. Now, uh, maybe you don't want to spend the money, and they can be expensive. I stumbled on some free ones. Don't you like free? Here, next slide. This is a picture from my shelf. I took this picture yesterday of my 20-volume New Testament commentary series called IVP, or InterVarsity Press. I paid $400 for this 20-volume set. On BibleGateway.com, you can get it for free. They have, uh, the, the authors have waived their rights and they have chosen to make this, now it's electronic, but you uh, can access this commentary set electronically for free on this website. The same website has another uh, free modern commentary called the Asbury Bible Commentary. This is a single volume of the whole Bible, so I can't say as much, but it's a huge volume. It's 1,200 pages. It's modern, it's excellent, and it's available on Bible Gateway. Dot com for free. Here's another commentary resource. Biblehub.com has 30 free commentaries. You say, why so many? Because they're public domain. It means that they're old. 
When they get old enough, they become free. These are all electronic. This one's called the pulpit commentary. This is, again, a monster set. That's, this is a picture of my shelves. It's for free. Um, even though they're old, some of the classics are available. And though the language can be a little hard because it's slightly uh, archaic, it's still just great stuff. And so those are available if you don't want to spend the money. Next slide. But help is available. Now, I study and I try to understand the scriptures without turning to the commentary. And if I find something I just can't figure out, then I turn to the commentary. I recommend a similar approach. All right. Verse 11. It says, When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. What's up with that? Josiah's reading about God's plan for life, and he's realizing, I'm not living God's plan for life. My life is so far off from God's instructions. And he's overcome with grief, remorse. And they used to demonstrate it by tearing of their shirts. The thing that I love about this is that there's passion in the Bible study. I'm going to use the word feel. You've got to feel it. You know, some of you are real academic and your Bible study never engages the heart. That's not good. God did not intend for Bible study to be merely cerebral. It's supposed to be passionate. There should be times of conviction like Josiah where you weep because you're failing to follow God the way he intended life to be. There should be times where it's not grief, but it's joy as you celebrate your discovery of what God is like. You want to dance. You want to sing. There should be times where you're racing with excitement to put into practice what you've just learned about how God wants life to be. But pray and seek the engagement of a heart. This, is, this emotion is where the truth impacts the way we feel. That's where it gets fun. All right. Verse 13. Verse 13 says this. Josiah pulls together some of his officials, his friends, and he says to them, Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Inquire of the Lord regarding what we just read in the book. To inquire of the Lord is to pray. Let's put the word pray down. You know, Josiah is king, so he tells people, I don't want to read. You read to me. I don't want to pray. You pray for me. No, you should pray for yourself here. But the the point Josiah understands is inquiring of the Lord regarding the text is essential. And folks, prayer should be a part of Bible study. Bible study should be a dialogue where God speaks to us from the book and we speak to God in prayer. Your Bible study should involve arguing with God. What are you trying to say here, Lord? I don't get it. Or why, God, why? Or, Lord, I love you because you're like this. Or, Lord, help me live what you say. But our whole Bible study should be interacting with God. All right. I want to go now to chapter 23, verse 2. Josiah, it says, Josiah read... In their hearing, who's they? He had gathered, he'd called out to all the people of Judah and he said, come to Jerusalem, to the temple. I got to tell you what we found. He's so excited. And so everybody is gathered and it says that Josiah read in their hearing 
all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. He read it to the people. He couldn't keep it to himself. It had to be shared. In fact, let's put the word share. One of the things when we discover great stuff, treasure in the Bible, you know what you should do? Tell others. You know, sit around your dinner table and to your kids say, hey kids, uh, dad or mom, you know, I read a verse this morning. I just want to share with you. I'll warn you, eyes will roll, all right, when you do this. So, oh man, here it goes again. At least that's how my kids are to me. But don't let the rolling eyes stop you. The scriptures need to be celebrated and shared. Share with your spouse. My wife and I frequently will share with each other at bedtime or maybe in the morning a passage that we're just really excited about. Share with your spouse. My mother-in-law sends me a text, not just me, our whole family. She sends a text every day with a scripture that's been meaningful to her. The Bible should be shared. Josiah knew it. One more, and that is uh, in the next verse, verse 3. It says, Josiah, still standing at the temple with all the people around him, the king renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord, a covenant to follow the Lord and keep his commands and statutes and decrees with all of his heart. (laughs) I love this. Josiah says, people, I've just read the book. I'm not living like that. Are you? Josiah says, that's about to change in my life. Right here, I covenant with God to start obeying his instructions. I'm not just going to read it. I'm not just going to think about it. I'm going to live it and put the word live here. The Bible is to be lived out. If your Bible study time has got an encapsulated shell around it and you never put it into practice, you're missing the point. We should be saying, God, convict me, inspire me. I'll live it. If I'm studying Acts and I see the boldness that they lived with, I'll try to live with that boldness. If I see you calling me to love my spouse differently, I'll do it. But I want to not just study it, I want to live it. Look at that. Some good stuff, huh? What was the result of this pathway regarding Scripture? Well, let's take a look. First, let me tell you, they wiped out all the idols and idol paraphernalia that was in the land. They started worshiping in the temple again. They re-engaged with the calendar that God commanded Old Testament people to follow, and including uh, the Passover. Let me read you this verse. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. Wow. This is the writer's way of saying the Passover that took place in Josiah's day was better than any Passover this nation has ever seen. These were the glory days. I mean, man, the people were alive to God. Wow, I want to be a part of that. What brought this about? The Bible. What brought about the great awakening 500 years ago at the Protestant Reformation? The discovery, the translation of the Bible. Folks, the book has been proven again and again to be God's spoken word capable of renewing and reviving the soul. Do you want to be a part of that? I want to end by showing you one more, kind of have a show and tell day here. 
But my grandmother, who died about nine months ago, prior to her death, she said, Jeff, I want you to have this. This is a family Bible that's almost 200 years old. Can you believe that? Uh, I am of Norwegian descent, and it's written in Norwegian, so it's not very much practical benefit to me, but it's a treasured heirloom. As I looked in the back page of it, I saw handwritten writing. I want to now zoom in on that handwritten writing. Look at how far it dates back. 1767. Uh, Lillesand, Norway. It's a list of my descendants and who they married and who their kids were. Absolutely precious. And I started thinking about how the Norwegian side of my family has been so, their names are in the Bible, so apropos, because the Bible has been so much a part of their heritage. Back then, my descendants were all Lutheran. Uh, In Norway, uh, it was a Protestant, Lutheranism is the branch of Protestantism founded specifically by Martin Luther, that's why it bears his name. And Norway was one of those countries that flipped to becoming Protestant and Lutheran. And so everybody was Lutheran. And these Lutherans said the Catholic Church has not been holding up the authority of Scripture enough. So we're going to be Protestant and raise the Scripture. Sola Scriptura, they said back then. Now, here's the problem. The government, and it's still the case in Norway today, the government runs the church. It's the state church, the Lutheran church is. And any time the government runs something, well, I won't say, you can speculate. <laughs> With time, some Norwegians grew frustrated that the, the Lutheran church that had been founded on the authority of Scripture was now drifting from the authority of Scripture. And back 150 years ago, there were some awakenings in Norway that resulted in some fired up, Bible-believing Christians to saying, we can't be a part of the state church anymore. And they started new churches called free churches. The word free means free of state control, independent of the state church. And my uh, ancestors got caught up in a beautiful way in the free church movement. And they loved Christ because of the Bible. Well, when all these Norwegians started to immigrate to the United States, they teamed up with the Swedes to start an American version called the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is the denomination we are a part of. It's a denomination founded on the belief that God has spoken and that his word has the power to transform and should be the authority of all matters regarding spiritual truth. And so, folks, we are a part of a denomination that says the Bible is God's word for humanity. We are in a church that believes the Bible is God's word for each of us. The question is, do you believe that? Are you living sola scriptura? Is your daily routine bear evidence to the fact that this book has the power to transform your life? If not, I pray the days ahead would begin to reflect that conviction. Because together, as a church, we're going to continue to study this book. Not this one, it's Norwegian. This book. (laughs) And as it's brought life in the past, it'll bring life again. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for writing a book. Good idea. Gracious gift.
Thank you, Lord, for your decision to speak through prophets and apostles of old and use them as agents to bring your word to, uh, to us. Lord, I pray that you would help the Bible become not just a dusty book in our homes. Lord, please help me, help each of us to grow in our tapping into the life-giving power that's there. May we be a people of conviction that say there are some things I know because the word of God says it. There are some things I believe because the word of God says it. God, help us be people who know what you say is true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.